0: Hello, this is episode 54 of the Arphology 2 podcast. How are you doing? Good, isn't it? 54. I think we're nearly at a year. I think next week is the year anniversary of this podcast. So, you know, that that's that's great. Uh, it's freezing. I'm so cold. I'm actually supposed to be, well, I'm not supposed to be working. I've finished work, but I've still got some work to do. But I'm taking a break from it to record the podcast because my hands are so cold that I can't even type. I'm wearing studio headphones like I do to record this podcast, so I can monitor background noise and stuff. But I'm wearing like a hat over the top of my headphones to record the podcast. I've just put the heater on to sort of try and level out the temperature. So hopefully, by the time I'm done with the podcast, my fingers will be warm enough so I can continue working. I've got like a semi intelligent sort of podcast for you this week, just a bit of like critical analysis of literature. But obviously, like, I don't know what I'm talking about, so it is going to degenerate a little bit into weirdness. But before I get going, I have to talk to you about something. I have to talk to everybody about this at the moment because I am obsessed. I'm absolutely mad for it, which is uh, Vegemite. don't know if you know what a Vegemite is. I think a lot of listeners are American and they probably wouldn't have a lot of experience with the Vegemite or even Marmite. I don't know if Marmite's an American thing. Vegemite and Marmite, they're sort of like the same thing. Vegemite is sort of just like the Australian version of Marmite. Just a different brand. It's like a vegetable extract mixed with yeast and it turns into this nasty brown paste. It's like a really thick brown, salty very savoury tasting spread. And you put it on toast, but you can also put it in in meals to give it bit of flavour and there's always this joke that either you love it or you hate it if you're a, a bit of a prick people, but some people think you're funny they might call you a Marmite man because some people love you and some people hate you and I've always hated it um, but I decided that I'm going to give it a chance you know, I was going to eat it a few times in a row to, to see if I can get used to the taste and oh my fucking god I'm a convert oh my god I mean, like, I've been eating like Marmite on toast, I'm not, I'm not joking Like 15 times a day <laughs> I think I had I think I had 10 slices of toast yesterday with, with Marmite on it sorry with, with Vegemite on it absolutely mental I've gone mad for it I think it's just the best I've ever with this bread called Vogel's bread which is I think only available in New Zealand And oh my god it's changed my life Like everybody has to eat Vegemite on toast with butter with with quality bread it, it it's the best thing ever I've gone mad for it so much so that I'm telling my podcast about it um, so that's my latest obsession in fact, I mentioned the other week that I've sort of got a bit of a, a bit of a Jesus obsession and it is getting out of hand like I, I just keep on reading things on the internet and thinking about it, I just keep thinking about Jesus all the time, and I, like, as you'll know if you listen to this podcast, I'm not really just man at all, I don't believe in any of it, but like, the obsessions with Jesus and what he said, and uh, the interpretations of it is becoming like a real problem for me. So I've sort of tried to, to to create a new obsession to stop this one really getting out of hand. And Vegemites filled a big hole, to be honest. But uh, the, the main other obsession that I've managed to get in the last few days to pull me away from Jesus is Charlie Chaplin. Um, Charlie Chaplin, uh, if you don't know who he is, like... Who are you? <laughs> he's very famous. Uh, he's a British actor, comedian, director, filmmaker. He's dead now. Must be dead for like 30-odd years. Dead on Christmas Day, actually. Did, uh, did Charlie Chaplin. He, he did like silent films. He was like, the, the main exponent of silent films. And I, I've been watching a few of them and like, they're funny. And you wouldn't necessarily think that they'd be funny, but they are. Like... He, they were genuinely sort of good films. Like if you've never seen a film before, and you watched this silent films of Charlie Chaplin, think this is fucking great. Obviously, some of it doesn't really stand up to modern films because technology is has moved on. But he was a pioneer. He he sort of created the the the, the modern film industry. It wouldn't be as it is without Charlie Chaplin, and sort of that gave me the idea for what this podcast is going to be about, which is. Like old parallels so parallels with old pieces of art and literature and film with like modern ideas so how those the ideas in those films still apply today so to do that i'm gonna to have to do a bit of like literary criticism and film criticism which just isn't my fucking bag to be honest i think literature is the biggest load of fucking bollocks that like i, I like books to a degree right i like stories. I don't like fucking pretentious language. What people consider to be literature, it's sort of like, you know, they take like six pages to describe a sunset and it's all like really flowery, beautiful language. I think that's fucking nonsense. Tell me the story. Tell me what happens. Don't dress it up ridiculously in in flowery language. I fucking hate that. Uh, and same with filmmaking, actually. I like all this symbolism. No, oh, just, yeah, don't bother. The idea... If the idea is good enough that you have for your story, uh, for your piece of work, then you shouldn't need to dress it up. And you can see that my opinion of that sort of appears in this podcast. Like this podcast doesn't have any music, doesn't have an intro, doesn't have an outro, doesn't have any breaks in the middle. Uh, Yeah, I don't have like a little break for like a questions round or, you know, I just think that I'll sit down and I'll talk and if people will listen to it, that's great. That means that, you know, what I've said has, has come through or they've enjoyed listening to it. And if they don't listen, if the people don't listen to it, that means they haven't. But, you know, I haven't tried to deceive anybody or dress it up for anything that it, is, that it isn't. This podcast is me talking. And if I was to write a book, it would be me writing a You know, I wouldn't be trying to hide behind similes and metaphors. I would be just laying the idea and the story out to you. and Same if I made a film, I'd be doing all of that. Anyway, that was a bit of a rant, so we'll go back. Um, the podcast is going to be about how old pieces of work, pieces of art, pieces of creativity, and the ideas within apply to today. There you go. It sort of applies to, like, I think it was, I don't remember his name, Car, car. Like K A R R, not like a driving car. He was like a philosopher or something. I don't know. He said, um, "The more things change, the more they stay the same." So like nothing ever really changes. The, the the knowledge of what yeah the the world has changed and the knowledge of the world has changed a lot since like the Greeks and the Romans. But in the same way, it really hasn't. Like the, the politics of stuff has changed, but also it really hasn't. You still have left versus right, powerful versus not powerful, uh, the people versus oppressors. And this cycle just sort of repeats itself over and over, despite the circumstances in which it repeats itself changing. Um, and like Karl Marx talks about that in the in, in Communist Manifesto. And the Communist Manifesto is amazing, right? It, 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 like I spoke about it the other week. If you read the first, I think it's like 15-20 pages of it, like the first part of the Communist Manifesto where he explains sort of how the world works economically it is amazing. It's like it's it's like he wrote it yesterday. If he did write it yesterday and you were to read it now, if it came out of a new book and you to read it, you'd be like, yeah, fucking hell. He's analysed the world well. Obviously it does start to go off the rails a little bit when he starts saying how you should fix it. But in terms of how he describes how the world works, like, he couldn't be more spot on. And that was written, like what, 170 years ago, the Communist Manifesto? So things have changed so much in the last 170 years. But the way that you can read it and still read it as if it's happening today means that they sort of haven't. So I think I've got three. I think I've got three pieces of work which I'd like to talk about and how they reflect sort of modern reality how these historical pieces of fiction can be applied today of how the world works so i mentioned i've been obsessed with charlie chaplin and charlie chaplin is the first person i'm going to speak about so charlie chaplin was a silent filmmaker he did his whole career in silent films i think he started like 1915 or something very early on in films you know during the first world war I think, I don't know, I I haven't researched it enough. Uh, And he did silent films for like 35 years. And even after speaking films came about, even after sound was possible in film, he still stuck with silent films. Until he got his first speaking role, until he wrote his first film with sound, which is probably his most famous film. It was released in 1940, so during the Second World War. It's called The Great Dictator, and it's about Adolf Hitler. I'll give you a few spoilers here. So, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it yet in the last 80 years, I'm going to ruin it for you. So, basically, it's about Hitler and a barber. And the barber is a doppelganger for Hitler. He looks exactly like him. They look identical, the barber and Hitler. And they keep on getting mistaken for each other. And it all gets a bit complicated, but in the end, what happens is the barber dresses up as Hitler to escape prison, I think, and he, he, he manages it, but then they realise what he's done, so they go and arrest him. But In fact, they don't arrest him. They end up arresting actual Hitler because he looks so much like him that they, they can't tell the difference. So they end up arresting actual Hitler, and they get fake Hitler, the guy who looks like him, the barber, and they take him to do this speech. Like Hitler does, so he he's supposed to he's then got to address to the German people, and he's like fuck I don't want to do this. Like I'm just a barber, like, I, I'm not Hitler. But he doesn't want to tell people he's not Hitler because he get arrested again. Meanwhile, actual Hitler's been thrown in prison. But so he he stands up on the podium, and he has this sort of moment of of realization that he this is his chance to tell the world about his ideas. So he then he then you know he's supposed to be this authoritarian fascist but he gives this speech about democracy and equality and how the people should rise up and challenge authority and and the people that oppress them and obviously this was a significant challenge to hitler at the time this was released in 1940 in fact it wasn't very popular when he was making it even even in england because they were trying to be nice to Hitler at that point, but after the the war, the war had broken out in 1940, it was a good piece of propaganda. So it was, a, at the time, a very significant piece of work. He stood up to Hitler on film in 1940 and trashed his ideology, which is, yeah, a fucking big deal, right? But it's it's still relevant today. There, there are a few lines in that speech that he gives that are still relevant, I, I should have got a copy of the speech to read off, but I don't have, <laughs> I don't have it. Um, so I'm just going to sort of paraphrase them a little bit. He says that the invention of technology, i.e., he uses the examples of the radio and the, and the airplane, they bring us close together. Closer together than people have ever been before. People have never had the opportunity to be in contact with each other as much as technology has enabled them to do in history it's never happened before and what we need to do with that is not use it to be dickheads which is essentially is what hitler did he had all this technology at his disposal and he used it to expand and he used it to oppress other people and what charlie chaplin is saying is that no it, technology and advances in technology need to be in the hands of good people of kindness they need to be used by people who are kind not by people who are evil and that's exactly the same as today like particularly social media it social media i was on social media when it first came out and it was so nice (laughs) twitter in 2008 2009 it was great you know everyone got on Even if you didn't get on, we all respected each other. It was so good. Facebook, it was just about, you know, looking at pictures of your friends. Oh, social media was so nice back then. But now it's so fucking horrible, isn't it? Because people who are evil have got their hands on it. The left-wing lunatics, the right-wing lunatics, the political trolls, the fucking soccer stands. you know, the fucking Korean pop fans it's just to be the whole place doesn't matter where you look in social media it's just full of fanatics who are horrible and so these great inventions have been used by horrible people to make the world horrible rather than making it better and I don't know how to solve it but I just think that him saying that about the radio and the aeroplane so he, what he's saying is that the radio is a great invention. You can get information out to people, but people are using it to be to, to put out horrible messages rather than nice ones. And he also has a go at machine men. He says the people who control you are machine men with machine hearts. And he says the people aren't machines. They're not cattle. They're, they're, they're men. You, you, you should not obey these machines you should take control as, as the people. So what he's saying in that is that sort of governments and corporations are very oppressive and that you don't have to do what they say. And that's sort of quite relevant today, isn't it? We're under the control of corporations and governments more than we've ever been. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I think that governments are necessary. I also think that corporations are necessary. It's I'm not an anarchist. Like Anarchism by its definition doesn't work because if you are an anarchist and you want to enforce anarchism, then you need a government to enforce the anarchism. You can't ban anarchism. Sorry, you can't ban uh, governments because that wouldn't be very anarchistic because you'd need a government to do it. So I'm not like that, but I do think that people do need to stand up for themselves. People do need to stand up to, to, to the machine, the machine men that control everything uh, it be that through democracy or through taxation or, or whatever, and I think Charlie Chaplin hit the nail on the head in 1940. Amazing. Um, let's move on. I did quite. I did longer on that one than I wanted to. Really. Another a, a left of field example of literature which has its uh, applications in modern day society is Peter Pan. And I know what you're thinking. Uh, Peter Pan's a weird little children's book. And you'd be right, it is. I've be reading a lot about Peter Pan. It's, uh, it's, for kids, it's for kids, isn't it? You know, it's about a boy who never wants to grow up who sticks it to an old pirate. And there are mermaids, and there are boys who are lost, and there's a fairy. And it's all about youthfulness, I guess. And... But actually, no, if you really read into it, it represents a power struggle pertinent to now, like identity politics. Peter Pan represents identity politics. So it's the old people versus the young people, which we see in society so much now. Everything is about how millennials versus boomers, how millennials are cunts and also boomers are cunts. I think it's probably, probably a bit of truth in both arguments. Um, because there are people who are cats all over the world, um, I don't think that you can really pigeonhole it. I guess the old versus young, really, what the debate comes down to, is capital capital holders versus wage earners. So the majority of young people are wage earners; they don't own anything; they get paid to 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 sustain themselves. Whereas the older generation, during sort of the nineteen eighties. They bought up all the capital, so they own everything. And that's how they sustain themselves. They sustain themselves through owning things. They all own their own house out, right, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the parallel with Peter Pan is you've got Peter Pan himself and the Lost Boys who are young and free. They're never going to get old. It's all about they're quite brash. It's all very sort of aesthetic for them. They like doing what they want. They like the freedom. They don't want to ever get old. It's a very creative thing. And then you've got Captain Hook, who's like a bitter old man. He owns everything. He's rich. He wants more. And he fucking hates Peter Pan. And I think they're sort of probably both envious of each other. Peter Pan is envious of Captain Hook's things. And Captain Hook is envious of Peter Pan's freedom. And I think, to a degree, that's what the whole old versus young, millennial versus boomer thing is about. Boomers are sad that they didn't live in the culture that millennials currently do, and as a result, they sort of take it out on them with with their capital. But also, millennials are sort of envious of the capital that, that, that they want a bit more security, which which isn't possible in in the modern world. So, Captain Hook and. Peter Pan are sort of like the old, the, the boomer and the and the millennial generation. And um, Peter Pan is a is a creative avocado man who lives in a flat in New York, whereas Captain Hook is a banker. He's a a banker on big bonuses who who owns lots of land and rents it out to as a slum lord. And and Smee, whatever his first name is. Lieutenant's me. I don't know. It's me, Sergeant's me. It's me. Captain Hook's right-hand man is your classic beta male. Um, he, he's the classic beta male, in my opinion. Is like. How's the best way to put this? He's like. He thinks he's an alpha male. So, there are loads of people who think that they're an alpha male because they're on like, the side of Captain Hook. So Captain Hook is an alpha male. Right. Peter Pan is an alpha male. And then you get people like Smee, which is the, the alpha male's right-hand man, who is the actual beta. People that follow perceived alpha males and are obsessive about them, they are the beta males. The the, the free spirits who go and do what they want, they're, they're not the secondary males. They do what they want, they don't care. It's the people that, that, that dutifully fall into line behind the alpha male. They're the ones who who can't stick up for themselves. They're the ones who are sort of weak, I guess, in my opinion. I don't know. It's not based on anything, it's just observation. And Tinkerbell is the silent contribution of, uh, of women to men's recklessness. You know, there's a lot of women who spend an awful lot of time clearing up after men because men are fucking stupid and reckless. And Tinkerbell is one of them. She, she looks after Peter Pan and the Lost Boys when they're being fucking stupid. So, yeah, there is that. Oh, and finally, the, the, the croc, the crocodile with the ticking clock inside of him is the concept of death. I spoke about this last week, about how sort of time versus money is a thing. So people sort of try to recruit money because they sort of think it'll make them live longer, but actually it won't. So I think that is represented within... The crocodile in Peter Pan, because he is the concept. of he, he scares Captain Hook because it might kill him, and he has a ticking clock inside of him. So he is the concept of death and how time is running out, and that is what scares Captain Hook into trying to acquire more capital. Oh, so good! I could. I'm a fucking literary writer. This is great stuff. Until I Google it, and I realize that people have thought of all this before. <laughs> um, yeah, like. He's the concept of mortality, the croc, and that's why he has a ticking clock inside of him. Amazing. Speaking of old people, by the way, and young people and the the, the struggle between the, the two age groups, which appears to define our our life. Um If you're old, stop sending young people memes all the time. Oh my god, I get so many memes. The coronavirus thing has made it so much worse because everyone's just sat at home all day. I reckon i get about 40 memes a day from people who are over the age of 50. And what it is, is it's like old people have... have People who have been resisting technology, which they tend to be older people who, who do that. People who think that technology isn't useful and not necessary for them and how it was better in the good old days when... Used to cycle places and children went out and played and you know got bummed by priests. People think it was better back then. Have now discovered actually it's better now and technology is awesome and they've discovered memes and yeah you know, obviously most kids, most young people, most people under thirty have been interacting with memes in one way or another since like two thousand and six. You know there was like we're taking the hobbits to Isengard <laughs> and things like that. Back in the day, like, like funny little videos and all that sort of stuff. And that's been around for so long. And now, like, old people have discovered memes. And it, but they're, they're like where we were back in 2006. <laughs> so the, the, the levels of humor in memes amongst, like, the older generation, and the younger generation, is, is very different. There's, like, different levels of subtlety to it. And I think, basically... The humours don't match up. I think it's a big problem with today's society because people are because identity politics separates people so much. When you try and cross over, so when, when old people start sending young people memes, it just becomes annoying. I don't know the solution, but it, it, it is annoying. So if you've recently discovered memes, um, like share a few. Just don't share like a hundred a day, please. Like it's exhausting. I can't reply to all of them. I don't want to feel rude. I don't want to feel rude by not replying. You know, if one of my parents sends me a meme, like, I want to go, ha ha, that's funny. But it's it's not funny. The internet's ruined humour. You can't laugh at anything anymore. Nothing's funny. Things that were funny 20 years ago, they've been done to death on the internet now, so they're not funny anymore. Fuck me. Anyway, quick, quick note on 1984. People can't talk about old pieces of literature that apply to the modern day without, without talking about 1984, I won't talk about 1984, um, but just the, the one thing I would like to point out is that if you're right wing and you use George Orwell's work as a tool to bash left wing people and say that what the left wing want is Orwellian, well you might be right because the left and the right do sort of converge in the middle in like a horseshoe thing. So the left and the right, they sort of bend around to, to meet each other. Um, maybe that's true, but the thing you need to know is that George Orwell was a socialist. That's about ultimate capitalist control. That's what 1984 is about. He was a socialist. He, he wasn't right wing. He's talking about fascism. And yeah, he combines elements of communism in, in with it, like the, the bad parts of it, but ultimately he was a socialist. And a Democrat, so just maybe check your own ideology before you go accusing people of of being Orwellian. Moving on to my final piece of work. So we've done Peter Pan, we've done Charlie Chaplin and The Great Dictator. Moving on to the final one, which I think is the best one because it's so rich and so deep in its themes, which applies to the modern world. Is War of the Worlds. If you don't know about War of the Worlds, is about um, it's about aliens invading the world and killing everybody. But it was like the first book about aliens invading the world and killing everybody. It was the first sort of bit of alien invasion literature. And it's fucking amazing. Uh, it I, I was into it as a kid. I loved it because there's a musical version of it by Jeff Wayne. Would fucking thoroughly recommend that as an album. Such a good listen. It's like a experimental concept album which tells a story of War of the Worlds and it's narrated by Richard Burton, who, ironically—not ironically—who, interestingly, was also in 1984, wasn't he? Interesting. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's fucking amazing. So I loved it as a kid because I thought that aliens and war were were cool as a kid. But now, as an adult, when I look at that piece of work, I realise that it was about so much more than just aliens invading the world. It its not an action movie script. It—it's it, a philosophical discussion of how our world is, or how our world was when he wrote it in 1888 or whatever whatever year it was. So we'll go through how War of the Worlds, written in in the 1800s, can be applied to today. So how a book written in the 1800s about aliens invading the world links in with how we live our lives today. Unreal. He predicted modern invasion warfare. So before it was ever done, before tanks existed, Before artillery was properly used, I mean like heavy artillery, I don't mean cannons, I mean, you know, big howitzer guns, before bombing raids were a thing, before any of this, he predicted that that would happen. He predicted total warfare where you just go in and you destroy everything. It never happened. You know, obviously the British army would have done some of it, the colonial armies would have done some of it, the Vikings did some of it, the Romans did some of it, where you go in and you burn stuff down, but that takes ages you go in and you you raise the city, but you have to actively do that. He said that modern technology will give it the the ability to just just steamroll a city. And that's how we're going to do invasions from now on. And he wrote that 50 years before it happened. The first time it really happened was Hitler with Blitzkrieg. They just bomb everything. They bomb the enemy into submission. That's what the Nazis did. That was their tactic. And that's sort of like modern invasion tactics. But he thought about it 50 years before it actually happened its destructiveness was unprecedented and it it was not not even conceived of and he conceived of it unbelievable but basically what the the martians do so the aliens who who invade the world that they come in and they, they come in big machines like tanks but they're like they walk on like a tripod and they shoot out like a heat ray or heat wave and the heat Burns anything in its path and basically sets people on fire. So they destroy everything in a fire immediately as soon as they land, and you can't resist it. The people fight back a little bit. They shoot some cannons at it, and they might kill. They might knock over the odd machine, but not really. They mostly just lose and get and get and get battered. And what? (laughs) And this is quite quite a leap, but I'm pretty pleased with this little take I've got here. That the total war that the Martians breed. It kills everybody. So there's an artilleryman who takes part in one of the battles and he survives. And he ends up on his own and he ends up with with the main character and they dig a hole. They're trying to dig down into, into the sewers and dig down underground to create like an underground resistance. They're going to build humanity again underground and then captured technology that the martians have replicated it and then rise up from the earth and take out the martians so what does that mean that means that happens at the moment that's what happened in like vietnam yeah the americans went and did total warfare they went and bombed everything they went and napalmed the entirety of the country they dropped more bombs in like a day than were dropped during the entirety of world war ii on vietnam i don't know if that stat is true but something in my head tells me it's true and they just flattened everything. But what that did is that created underground resistance. That created guerrilla warfare. And the, the, the probably the most recent example of, of this of total warfare of destroying a country and destroying a culture, turning against people through guerrilla warfare is ISIS. Throughout the nineties and the two and the early two thousands, the British and the Americans, primarily, were also the Russians to a degree bulldozed the middle east that they killed civilians they blew up cities they turned nice places into rubble and what do you do they, yeah okay they beat the military the military forces of saddam hussein they neutered the taliban but what do they do they send this all on the ground people they went underground to do it so they created isis that's what happened they they bombed the whole place into submission so people couldn't resist, so they went underground. Obviously not literally underground, like in War of the Worlds, but they did. They created their own resistance, and which was ended up being so much worse than the Taliban. He was predicting that. He was predicting underground resistances as a result of total warfare 130 years ago when total warfare wouldn't even exist for another 50. Unbelievable book, <laughs> The War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells in 1880, odd, predicted ISIS. That's what I'm saying. Unbelievable. Uh, he also talks about colonialism. I'll, I'll try and find the quote, actually, when he talks about colonialism. So the, the, the book was basically written about British colonialism. That's what War of the Worlds is about. It, it's, so it's about Martians, but the Martians are a representation of the British. And bear in mind this was written at the height of the British Empire. It's obviously a pretty controversial topic. So what he, talk, what he was talking about is how expansionist regimes are brutal towards indigenous peoples. And you see that all over the world. You see that in the, the Americans' treatment of the Native Americans. You see that in the treatment of the Aboriginal people in Australia. You see it in South Africa. You see it to a degree in New Zealand, although not not necessarily to the to the degree of, of of other places. You saw it with the Spanish in South America, what they did to the native populations, and what they're still doing to a degree. That people, I lived in Australia, I saw what people do to the Aboriginals. I saw how they're treated by the police and by other people, and it's horrible. And it's still happening, and that's what the book is about. It's about the Martians aren't martians that they're just a a colonial force and i'll read the quote of what he says sorry that's what i was going to do earlier wasn't it he says and before we judge the martians too harshly we must remember what ruthless and utter destruction our own species has brought not only on animals such as the bison or the dodo but on its own inferior races the tasmanians in spite of their human likeness were entirely swept out of existence in a war of extermination waged by European migrants in the space of 50 years. Are we such apostles of mercy as to complain of what the Martians did to us? So basically what he's saying is that the, the British Empire perceived themselves to be superior to the Tasmanians, so they just wiped them out. And what, So you feel bad for the people in the book what the martians are doing to the people but actually it's no different to what people do to other people and that sort of feeds in to what i was running on about is that it's about social darwinism it's about racism it's about feeling superior as a race so that you can do what you want to them. you have a right to 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 claim superiority over another race or over another country because you feel better than them because you're technologically superior you feel the need to eradicate their culture, which is happening, and it's happened. You see it all the time, particularly with indigenous people, but you also see it with with, with black culture. People try and eradicate the achievements, the historical achievements of, of of black people. Obviously, things are getting better like that, and they are. They are getting better, There's still a long way to go. And H.G. Wells was talking about 130 years ago. The idea hasn't gone away. It's unbelievable how he was writing about it 130 years ago that Martians are discriminating against humans, and, and that's if he wrote that book today, you would still draw that comparison, which is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, the other thing he talks about, which I quite like, is is religion. Um, that basically praying is futile. Twice during the, the book, according to Wikipedia, twice during the book do people pray, um, and both times it doesn't work and they, and they die or they, they, they get they get hurt or they get attacked and that praying does nothing against the machines so that the message there is to trust in nature and science and I think that sort of today we that's still applicable you have to trust in scientists you can't trust in God because you're gambling big time on something that you don't even know exists and if you were to pray that coronavirus is going to stop um, it's not going to happen <laughs> uh, the way it's going to stop is through, is through a vaccine uh, that, that's, how, that's how it's going to stop and um, speaking of which if, you, if you're an anti-vaxxer fuck me Like, come on think about it just read about vaccines for a bit like, read about how they work it's so logical how they work they can't cause autism can't happen anyway move on um, the end of War of the Worlds, what happens, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the 130-year-old book yet, I'm going to ruin it for you, the way that they lose, the way that the Martians end up halting their invasion is they all die of cold. They all get bacterial infections and they die because on Mars, because they're so technologically superior, they eradicated bacteria hundreds of years before they do their invasion. So as soon as they get to Earth, they get exposed to bacteria, and the bacteria has a field day because they they have no immune system and it kills all the Martians. It's a bit of a cop-out, really, the book. <laughs> there's there's no sort of heroic moment where the people rise up, uh, the Martians just all suddenly drop down dead. And that leads me on to my finishing point. So my point here, my finishing point is and I think this is sort of the thing of the thing in the book, is if you don't believe in God, then you can at least sort of believe that. Like, like nature is God, and that maybe, he sort of suggests it in the book that the bacteria were put there by God to regulate nature, so to kill off anything that that that, that tries to invade or that gets too big for its boots. That's sort of the, su- the suggestion from the book that God wasn't there to help us, but he did put bacteria there, and that that sort of feeds into to this idea that maybe. Diseases and nature sort of regulates itself and nature is in fact what we call God. So that leads to the final question, which is, is COVID-19 and other such plagues, other pandemics, other diseases, are they nature or God, nature or God's way, are they sort of part of a natural cycle to prevent dominance by one species such as us? Is COVID-19 nature's way of restricting humans and stopping us getting too big for our boots? Um, that's the big question. I think pro- probably not. I think it's probably random. That's <laughs> in all honesty. But it's a nice question to ask, isn't it? Yeah, it's thoughtful. I said, I said, this is going to be a semi-intelligent podcast. I might have described that point as semi-intelligent. Um, Yeah. Pro- probably not, but you never know. That It might be sort of nature's way of, of, of keeping us in shape. Maybe we are the Martians in this scenario, and the disease is there to hold us back. But the good news is, is that we're smarter than the Martians, and we'll we'll fucking, we'll fucking trash this disease eventually, and we will move on. We will move on. We will get, we'll get out of this horrible mess that we're in, and things will get better. Anyway, that will be it for this week. Fuck me. I don't know. Was that a long podcast? I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, so pre-edit this recording was forty-five minutes long. That's longer than normal, isn't it? Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. That was mental. Enjoy. <laughs> uh, that was good. Like there wasn't too many breaks, and that really, really got into the, the the swing of it. I don't know if any of that was sort of real. I don't know if that made sense or if I have a point. It's very hard to tell if you have a point when you do this thing by yourself because there's no one to go. Oh, actually, you're talking bollocks. Speaking of which, um, you'll note I haven't talked about this for ages. But you'll note in all the podcasts, in all the, every episode, there's a link in the in, in the description, and where you can send me a voice message. So do feel free to do that. You can send me a voice message. I probably won't play it on the show, as I said, I don't like to hide behind things. I, the the podcast is me talking. If you say something really interesting, I might play it on the show. But it's a nice way to get in contact. You can send me messages, voice messages about how wrong you think I am. In fact, no, don't send me messages about how wrong you think I am. I, I don't want to hear criticism. What's the point? So you're not going to change anything. You'd just be venting. Uh, if or other ways to criticize me, but again, don't. Uh, it's through social media, so you know there's there's all sorts of ways you can do that. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, do recommend the podcast to a friend, and I will talk to you next week. Goodbye.